Welcome to Church on the Edge. And as we begin today, I, I want to share with you just how much I am enjoying doing these podcasts. For 36 years, I taught from the church pulpit, the seminary lectern, and in various settings for conferences in places like Uganda, India, Thailand, Myanmar. I've taught on the edge of jungles where elephants would from time to time come crashing through fences and trample crops. Now, to be fair, that never happened while I was teaching, but it did happen enough that I kept one eye on the conference participants and one eye on the nearby jungle. By the way, here's a factoid for you. Elephants love tea, at least tea plants, and it's becoming a real problem in India. I've taught in uh, villages where cobras were worshipped as gods. In fact, I, I used to have a video recorded by one of the pastors I used to teach in India. It was a video of a baby in the middle of a circle of people. And in that circle with that baby was a, a, a cobra snake approximately about five feet long. And it struck the baby repeatedly on its head as the villagers watched. I asked my pastor friend what was going on. And he told me that they wanted to see whether or not the baby was a god. Now, you may find this surprising, but I went on to ask him. I said, I guess the baby died. He said, no, the baby lived. And the reason is, and you can see this in the video, the cobra struck the baby on its head repeatedly. But that skull area, that bone, actually protected the baby from the poison of the cobra. And I, I guess the villagers began to worship the baby. I don't really know. Anyway, I tell you, I've had some exper uh, incredible experiences in, in all kinds of settings where I've shared God's Word. I remember many, many years ago, a church that had invited me to preach for a, a, a week of uh, revival meetings is what they called it. And the last night in my message, I mentioned something about the second coming of Christ, and it was something that the pastor of that church evidently did not agree with. And so the pastor, along with a group of his leaders, came down to the front while I was preaching, and they knelt down right in front of me, and they prayed the entire rest of the message, vocally, not loud, whispering, but it was vocal, and I want to tell you, it was unnerving, to say the least. But I share all of that with you today to, to say this, the, the podcast setting, this particular podcast setting is like nothing I have ever done before. I've done some podcasts at, at Seoul International Baptist Church, which was a part of the Hawaii Pacific Baptist Convention. I did a 10-minute daily podcast called Hang 10. We had a little intro with the ukulele and the sound of waves in the background, kind of that Hawaii beach setting, you know, laid back. And I enjoyed doing it. We had an excellent sound room and, and fantastic equipment to do those recordings. But it was nothing like what I'm doing now. I'll tell you, this is just a simple home-produced podcast. And again, it's a podcast that I am enjoying every single minute of. And I want to tell you what I'm enjoying the most. I'm really enjoying being able to, sh being able to share some things that, frankly...
I could never really share when I was a public pastor and seminary professor. You know, the truth is we all have our private lives, and and those of us who have more public-type jobs, especially those of us who are ministers and, and other positions, we have to walk a fine line sometimes in what we say and what we don't say in our public settings, what we share and what we decide is best not to share. I'll give you an example. Apart from some youthful comments when I was a very young pastor, uh, youthful comments regarding politics from the pulpit, I stopped sharing anything related to politics. Now, this was especially important in my church in Seoul where we had United States citizens who were both diehard Republicans and strong Democrats. They came from different traditions. We had citizens from socialist countries and from communist countries. I mean, we had all kinds of ideologies in our congregation. And and frankly, that is what I think I loved most about serving as pastor in Seoul, the incredible diversity of our church. Now, I'll be honest, since I have been back in the United States, we just haven't found anything like that. We haven't found a single church that even even comes close to the kind of diversity in traditional backgrounds and culture. Our favorite church so far is a black American church, and out of the several hundred people that attend that church, I think Sherry and I are probably the, the only white people. But having been a minority for so long in Asia, that doesn't bother us. And, and in fact, we're getting to know our black American brothers and sisters, and we are thoroughly enjoying building these relationships. But back to what I was saying. These podcasts are giving me the opportunity to say some things and to, to be more open about my own life and my own beliefs, which in a lot of churches, frankly, some of those things would not have been so wise to share. But, and, and this is important, now that I'm free to share more openly, I really believe that I'll be able to connect with and encourage a lot of, a lot of my listeners in your commitment to Christ and on your personal faith journeys. All that just brings us to today's episode, which is entitled, The Landmarks That Define Us. You may recall from a, a previous episode in this series entitled, Journey of Faith, that we, we mentioned uh, that all faith journeys have two things. What? They have detours and they have landmarks. Times when we miss God or, frankly, just walk away from the life God through Jesus is calling us to live. And we've talked about Abraham and how Abraham followed God to the land of Canaan, which God promised to give to him and his descendants. And, and it was there that Abraham built an altar to the Lord. That was a landmark. It was a unique time and place, a, a special season in Abraham's life when he marked his experience and his commitment to God. But then famine came to Canaan. And when the famine came, not only did Abraham leave the promised land and journey to Egypt, but while he was there, he was willing to give his own wife, Sarah, to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt, to save his own skin. 
And after Pharaoh discovered that Sarah was actually Abraham's wife, well, he gave her back. The pagan king is more in line with God's will than the father of our faith. And frankly, that kind of thing, unbelievers, non-Christians being more in tune with God's will than believers, that kind of thing is, is still going on today. But after Sarah was returned by the Pharaoh, Abraham journeyed back to the promised land, back to the place where he had built that first altar and the place where his detour from faith had, had, had occurred. And Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 12 that it was there that Abraham called once again on the name of the Lord. Detours and landmarks. And I don't know whether you recognized it in the retelling of that story of Abraham, but there were two kinds of landmarks in Abraham's life in that story, just like there are two kinds of landmarks in your life and mine, and they are landmarks that define us. You see, there are those landmarks that are a result of, uh, they result in our lives from returning from a detour. And once we return from that detour, we call again on the name of the Lord. And, and let's be honest, you know, all of us have detours. Probably the most famous detour story in all the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. You remember that story? This young boy demands his inheritance from his father, and he goes out and he wastes it all on wild parties and loose living, and he ends up in the pig pen. And there in the pig pen, he is hungering for the food that is used to feed the swine. I'll tell you, that's as low as it gets for a Jewish boy. When you are hungry for the food that is used to feed the food that you're not supposed to eat in the first place, I'll tell you, you've reached rock bottom. But that is what Luke tells us. And Luke tells us that it was while he was there in that pig pen that this young man came to his senses. And the word that he actually uses there implies that the young man had lost his mind but come back to sanity. Anyway, he, he goes back home, uh, he re returns to the place of his detour, and he, and he plans a, a little speech that he's going to share with his father. You can read this in Luke chapter 15. Speech goes like this, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me to be one of your hired servants. But his father, who ran down the road to meet him and threw his arms around this dirty, smelly boy with pig stink all over him, his father cuts him off in the middle of his speech. He says, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the, the father cries out, Bring the robe. Bring the sandals for his feet and the ring for his finger. Kill the fatted calf. Tonight we celebrate my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Now, that was a landmark in the life of that boy's journey of faith, a landmark that was the result of returning from a detour. I've had some landmarks like that in my life, and I shared a little bit about that in a previous podcast, and I'm going to share some more of those detours in future podcasts. But I want, to, I want to mention a second kind of landmark. 
there are those landmarks where we go on a detour and we return to the place of the detour. But there are other landmarks, landmarks that are not the result of detours, but rather landmarks that are the result of a unique season in our lives, a unique time or experience, a a defining moment, if you will. I shared one of those landmarks in my own life in a previous episode. It was the story of God speaking to me in my uh, dorm room my freshman year in college. I had just prayed, and I had asked the Lord to open the doors and allow me to be accepted as a student uh, in a college in Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia Tech was the college. Now, I prayed that because I was head over heels with a a girlfriend who at the time I fully intended to marry, and, and in my prayer, I prayed something like this, Lord, help me to be accepted as a student at Georgia Tech because, Lord, I want to go back and be near the girl I'm going to marry. You may remember what happened. I lay in bed after that prayer, waiting to drift off to sleep when God spoke. Deep in my spirit, the Spirit of God communicated loud and clear to my spirit. No, not in an audible voice. It was much louder than that. And God said, you will be accepted to Georgia Tech, but you will never marry that girl. Now, that experience was one of the most significant landmarks in my life to this very day. But what I want to do now is to kind of fast forward a little bit from that experience. And I want to tell you the stories of two other significant life-changing, faith-changing landmarks that occurred in Dan Armistead's life. The first of those landmarks took place in my first full-time church. I was in my 30s at the time, early 30s. And it is the most bizarre story you have ever heard. I've never told it before. And to fully appreciate this story, I I need to give you a little bit of background here, okay? Now, in my early years, I was about as conservative fundamentalist as a pastor could have been. And I was definitely as Baptist as Baptist could be. And this was in the 1980s. It was during a time when there was a lot of controversy over the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which gifts were available to the church today, How should we use those gifts in the church? And and of all the controversial gifts, the gift of speaking in tongues was at the top of the list. Frankly, churches were being ripped apart by the abuses and misuse of this gift and the the misunderstanding. It was something that happened on on both sides of, of those who took a stand on this issue. And, and I'll be honest with you also, there was a lot of teaching which to this day I strongly disagree with that was connected and taught part and parcel with this idea of speaking in tongues, this gift of speaking in tongues. But, but it was during that time that a member of my church gave me a book by a man named Ben Kinslow. Ben Kinslow was a prominent host on the 700 Club, which Pat Robertson had founded. And Kinslow had written a book, and and somewhere in that book, he talked about all of his efforts 
to receive the, the gift of speaking in tongues in church after church, prayer meeting after prayer meeting. I mean, this guy had more hands laid on him than the Pillsbury Doughboy. And let me pause just a moment here and say a word about my church member who gave me the book. Lynn Wright was a retired pilot from what was then Continental Airlines. It, it's gone bankrupt since that time. But Lynn was a great guy. He used to own an old Indian motorcycle with a sidecar. And Lynn and his wife Martha, both who were in their 70s, used to come to church on that Indian motorcycle. There was Martha riding in the sidecar next to her husband. They were a unique couple, a wonderful couple. Sherry and I got to know them so well. Lynn owned a couple of airplanes, and he had an airfield on his ranch in, in Texas, and he used to give my wife and I rides. In fact, I'll tell you this story. When Sherry was expecting, approaching nine months with our second child, Mary, I took her over to Lynn's place and put her in the front seat of Lynn's Tiger Moth airplane, open-aired airplane, and I, I said to Lynn, now, Lynn, I'm ready for this baby. Take her up and ring her out. And boy, did he ever. He did loop-to-loop, -loop, spins, you name it. And there was my life, wife the whole time laughing, just had a blast, and, and the baby still was another couple of weeks before it came, before she came. Now, Lynn had also done those loop-to-loops and spins with me, i got to tell you, but, uh, you know, I, I just almost lost it. I was so sick, and he could tell. That's why Sherry's always been the one to ride the roller coasters. I hate those things. Why anybody would want to pay money to get sick going around on a roller coaster, I still haven't figured out anyway. Lynn is what I would call a marginal Baptist. He was a good disciple of Jesus. He was a great guy. He certainly wasn't Pentecostal or charismatic. He wasn't a tongue-speaking kind of guy. But he did keep up with a lot of the Christian TV shows, and I'm pretty sure that the book he shared with me from Ben Kinslow is one he, he got free from a contribution somewhere. Frankly, I'd be surprised if, if Lynn ever read the book. But he gave the book to me, and it was the last thing I wanted to read. I wasn't a fan of the 700 Club. I was not a, a big supporter of speaking in tongues. But because Lynn was a good friend and a member, I took the book, and I, and I read it. And it was about, I don't know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock on a weekday night. I was in bed and uh, a reading, and I got to the part in the book where Ben Kinslow talks about his quest and his his desperate attempt to receive the gift of tongues. And he finally got the gift. He finally was able to speak in tongues. And, I, and I'm reading this story, and, and I'm going to be honest, okay? I'm thinking to myself, man, I am so far away from this guy's theology. And that's when God spoke. Now, I want you to listen to me. It was just like that time in my dorm room a couple of decades before. God's voice was as plain as day as it erupted in my spirit. And God said, I have that gift for you. <laughs> I tell you, the Lord does have a sense of humor, doesn't he? I was in bed 
But I got up and I, I went to my study on the other side of the house and I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, you know, if you have that gift for me, I, I'll receive it. And lo and behold, I opened my mouth and began speaking profusely in another language, in tongues. I had that gift to this day. Anyway, I went back into the bedroom where my wife was laying in bed and I was laughing so hard. It was just the, the joy of the Spirit of God upon me, really. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. But I was laughing just uncontrollably, and I told Sherry what had happened. And ever since that day, again, I've had the gift of speaking in tongues. My wife, by the way, does not have the gift, uh, and it's not something we're seeking for her. We're certainly not worried about. Uh, she has been my mainstay and my spiritual rock all these years. But I have to be honest with you. Even even after receiving that gift, to this day, for the most part, I, I still pretty feel pretty much the same way as I did then uh, about the, the gift of speaking in tongues. And I, I guess I need to explain that. Personally, I don't think the gift of tongues was ever a gift that was really intended to be used in the public worship setting of a church. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he, he confronted the abuses and misuses of the of the gift in that church, and and he makes a statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He says this, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. And then Paul goes on to say, but, but if you're going to do this in your public worship service, if, if, if you really want to bring tongues into public worship, here are some guidelines I think you should follow. And he talks about interpretation, how many people should speak at each service. Look, I don't think Paul ever spoke in tongues in Corinth. And probably when he said to them, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than all of you, I, th I think he was surprised, they were surprised to even learn he had the gift. I'd rather speak five intelligible words in the church like Paul than 10,000 in, in tongues. So I'm just not a big fan of public of tongue speaking. Now, if you are, that's okay. I'm not criticizing or condemning you. We have some great Pentecostals some four-square Pentecostals in our church at SIBC. They respected uh, the, our style of worship. And again, I'm not condemning you. Uh, you know something? I could be absolutely wrong in my view. But again, at least where I am now, in both my understanding and my calling from God, I can, I can say this. I don't believe that sharing that story with my Baptist congregations through the years would have been a very wise thing to do. It probably wouldn't have been long until I was shown the door after telling a story like that in a Baptist church, which frankly has happened anyway, but for some different reasons. I've been shown the door, and I'll share about that in a minute when I get to my next landmark. But that gift of tongues and the manner in which I received it was a, a major landmark in my life. And, and here's what I think was the most significant result of that unasked for gift in my life in ministry. It, it, it stretched me. And I began to realize that in my rigid, conservative, Baptist ways, I was, I was missing a lot of what God was doing in his church. 
And I began what became a lifelong journey of just opening up to whatever God had for me and, and wherever, wherever it was found. And I began to learn that, that camps, religious, ideological, political, whatever, camps were not really where God was calling his people to pitch their tents. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I used to think the Methodist church, which at one time I belonged to, was, was just filled with a bunch of people destined for hell. Again, I, I know that's horrible, and I, I'm embarrassed to say it, but, but that's the kind of thinking that, that was driving me, and frankly, that's the kind of thinking that's still out there in so many circles of theology today. And just to be clear for my Methodist friends listening, you're just fine. I love you all. We had a lot of Methodists attending our Baptist church in Seoul. In fact, I hadn't thought about this, but I want to tell you a story. It's a story based on a joke that my Methodist aunt, Aunt Caroline, once told me. And the story goes something like this. I was in a meeting with the leadership of our church many, many years ago, and I was sitting next to the, the chairman of the deacons, who also happened to be a good friend, and, and the deacons were debating some silly issue. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, we were, we were both, the chairman and I were both kind of bored and rolling our eyes at it, and, and so I just kind of leaned over, and I whispered this joke that my Aunt Carolyn had told me to our chairman of the deacons, Robin, I said, what's the difference between Methodist and Baptist? And he shrugged his shoulders, and I told him, I said, well, the difference is that Methodists speak to each other in the liquor store. And I want to tell you, my friend, the chairman of the deacons, Robin, he, he just lost it. You know that suppressed laughter when you're in a public setting and, and you really don't want to laugh out loud, so you're, you're, you're trying to just keep it in, hold it in, suppress it? Well, well, that's what my friend Robin was doing, and somehow he managed to get through that meeting with just out completely cracking up in front of all the other deacons. And so afterwards, I followed him out to his car as everyone was leaving, and I asked him, I said, what was going on with you? I said, you know, I, I know it was a funny joke, but it, it wasn't that funny. And so Robin told me the night before our meeting, he had bought a bottle of wine at the liquor store. And as he was walking out the door, another one of the church leaders, another one of the deacons was walking in. And he said, you know, pastor, I looked one way and he looked the other and neither one of us said a word. Now, that's a joke I never told from my Baptist pulpit, and, and that's what I love about these podcasts. But, but back to what I was saying, that experience, that landmark in my life of speaking in tongues, it stretched me, and it got me outside of that rigid camp theological thinking that has, has ended up making me a, a much better follower of Jesus more open to what God is doing in, in my life and the lives of other followers of Jesus, less critical, less judgmental, and, and more able to see God at work in, 
in people and places that I never imagined. But now let me fast forward, and I want to share with you another landmark that to this day continues to guide me on my walk of faith. It was the evening of October 17th, 2004. And I had been so distracted by conflict and division and infighting in the church that I served that I I had no idea. I just hadn't been keeping up with the news, and I had no idea that there was a total lunar eclipse set to occur the, the evening of October 7, 2004. My wife and I had just come home from what was known as a town hall meeting at the church. There's a lot of turmoil again, as I mentioned, and and when I arrived in the church back in 1995, that church was was just barely hanging on. It was almost dead, almost ready to, to close the doors. In fact, the church had voted just a few months previously on whether or not to merge with another dying church in the town. Both churches were filled with older members who were dying, and there were no new people, no younger people coming into these churches to help sustain them and help them move forward. So anyway, they took a vote whether or not to merge with this other church, and the, and the, ver- the vote to merge failed, and they decided to call a pastor, which happened to be me. That was 1995. Nine years later, what had once been a dying church was now a thriving church. We were filled with with young adults and children. We had a strong youth group. We had remodeled a 1950s education building and and had this state-of-the-art children's ministry. The papers uh, uh, came and did a a whole article on it, both in Atlanta and and in the city where I lived. We had a movie room, a puppet room, a Bedouin encampment for the kids. We had a creation station where children worked with their hands, and the children loved it, and the the ministry was incredible. And although we continued with the, the tradition of hymns sung to the piano and the organ, we also made some changes in the worship service. For part of the service... We sang praise songs, and we sang those songs with a guitar. Again, we still sang the hymns with the piano and the organ, but for part of the service, praise songs with the guitar. But, and this is a story in all too many churches, the older members of the church felt threatened, and they felt like they were losing their church. So many new people were coming in. New leaders were being elected. This is just not what our church is supposed to be like. If I heard that statement one time, I heard it dozens of times. One older lady actually would get up from her seat when the guitar started playing, and she would leave the auditorium while motioning other guests to follow her. That same lady cornered the guitar player, who's one of the finest young men I've ever known, Uh, young, new, fresh in his Christian walk, but she cornered him one day and, and, and she said to him, she said, you are nothing more than a tool of the devil. And I want to pause here and I want to say something about that. Like I said earlier, I I really like these podcasts because I can say things here that uh, I felt I couldn't say from the pulpit as a pastor and really uh, things that there are things that need to be said. 
But you know, you think that in the church, that the followers of Christ who would demonstrate the most grace, who would be the kindest and wisest, and who would encourage others the most would be who? The elders, the older people. Those who had walked with the Lord for many, many years and who had grown in the maturity of the Spirit of Christ, peacemakers, those again who would encourage the newer disciples, and yet how many times are the older members in the church the causes of some of the greatest division, disunity, and disruption the very thing that is, is giving the church, or one of the things that is giving the church a bad name in our day. I'll tell you, that one thing alone, the fact that so many older members just don't seem to demonstrate the, the grace and the goodness and the peacemaking of Christ, that one thing alone should cause us to rethink how we teach people to follow Jesus, how we disciple people. I'm telling you, I've said it so many times in this podcast, and I'm going to say it again. It is a hallmark of my ministry. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Dot your I's and cross your T's in relationships. Love God with all your heart, Jesus said, and love others as yourself. Well, anyway, because of this disruption in the church, the the leaders of the church had decided to call a special town hall meeting. That's what they were calling it, to air out some of the issues and problems. And I want to tell you, it, it was a disaster. I've never seen anything like it. It was ugly. It was unchristlike. It, it was heartbreaking. And my wife and I left that meeting that night just crushed. I was still the pastor, but but the writing was on the, the wall. Frankly, I knew that if I stayed and if it came down to a vote, I more than likely would continue to stay as the pastor, but the church would continue to be divided. And so I knew that the time was fast approaching when I had to leave. We drove home, parked the car, and sat looking up at the stars and the moon. And as we prayed and, and asked God what in the world had happened and, and what was in store for our ministry, how had it come to this, while we were doing that, totally unexpected, that full lunar eclipse began. And we sat in, in absolute wonder. Now listen, I know people around the world watch this eclipse, but as far as Sherry and I were concerned... That eclipse that night was a personal message from God written in the heavens just for us. And it marked a significant event in our lives and our ministry. It, it set into motion a series of events that ended up leading us to Seoul, Korea, and the greatest 12 years of our, our lives and ministry, times where we grew so much spiritually, it, it was a landmark. And it actually, it coincided with another landmark that I had recently experienced. Boy, I tell you, I'm sharing some things with you I've never shared before, but here it comes. It was 3.15 one morning. I had been waking up pretty regularly around 3 o'clock in the morning and had just been unable to get back to sleep. I was so worried about problems in the church, stress. I had actually recently been to the emergency room with what they thought was a heart attack. It just turned out to be extreme stress. But 
the point is that I had started drinking. Like I said earlier, again, the good thing about these podcasts is I don't have to be near as careful about what I say, but I had started drinking in the middle of the night to help me get back to sleep. This particular night, I got up, I poured myself a drink, and I lay back down in bed, and that's when the voice of God spoke, unexpected again. Just like in my college dorm, just like in bed when I was given the gift of tongues, the third time in my life, really, that I heard the voice of God so very clearly and undeniably, and, and it was one word, that's all, one word exploded in my spirit, changes, changes. Well, I finished my drink and I went back to bed, but imagine my surprise when less than a week later, I opened a new book I had just purchased. And there on the first page in the introduction, in italics, in the middle of the page, was the word changes. <laughs> I told you this stuff sounds unbelievable, but, but it is absolutely the truth. And what I'm describing really is a sort of a landmark season in my life. The eclipse, the, the word spoken in the wee hours of the morning, the same word in italics in that book. Now, all of this took place within about a, a two-month period. And I want you to understand something about my life and my faith and my, and my calling from God to be a pastor and a teacher, to, to really encouraging others in their walks of faith. And what, what I want you to understand is that, that this began very early in my life. By the age of 12, I knew God was calling me to be a, a minister. And, and in fact, I was telling my parents that. If you have listened to some of my previous podcasts, you know that I committed my life to Christ at age 15. But as early as 12, I was saying, I'm going to be a minister. People say, well, how do you explain that? I, I don't. I simply say it's the call of God on my life. Before I even committed my life to follow Jesus Christ, I knew God was calling me. But when I experienced what I experienced in that church, with all of its growth and attracting new members and new life, with God at work in the hearts and lives of young adults and children and youth, and, and then to see it all destroyed, and it, it was destroyed. Approximately 10 years after I left the church, it, it closed its doors for good. In fact, the Methodist church next door ended up buying the building. But what I experienced in that church began to really impinge on my faith. I began to struggle with my Christian faith. You see, it wasn't just in, in my church I visited uh, the headquarters for the Southern Baptist in the state of Georgia, and I spoke there with the man who was the head of the, of the church minister relations in those state offices. I gave him my resume. I shared with him some of the problems I had encountered in the church I was pastoring, and, and he began to tell me story after story in church after church where the very same kind of thing had happened, and, and people were leaving, and pastors were being fired. In fact, a good friend of mine had been asked during that same time to leave his growing church 
and he was asked to leave while his life lay dying in bed from a brain tumor in her mid-30s. My friend survived that attempt to push him out, and his church to this day is, is actually one of the strongest churches in the United States. But what I'm trying to tell you is it was stories just like these that, that put my Christian faith in a tailspin. And I was, I was ready to walk away from it all. I, I didn't want to have anything to do with the church. And it was through God's grace that I ended up in Seoul, Korea, in again the most incredible church I've ever known. And it was there that God did this incredible work of healing in my life, bringing me back to the calling and the ministry and the work that he had for me. And no, I don't believe the church in the United States today, but I'll also say in, in many other parts of the world, I don't believe the church is okay. I don't believe that at all. In fact, I want to share with you a a verse from Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. Chapter 6, verse 7 of Jeremiah says this, Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Those are the words of the Lord speaking through his prophet. And Jeremiah was speaking in that verse of God's people in his day and the state of their religion. But but those words are just as applicable for the church today. In fact, seven verses later, Jeremiah says this about the religious leaders of his people who refused to acknowledge just how sick their religion had become. He says, they dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. I'll tell you, in fact, if you were to read the prophets who warned Israel and its shepherds of the disaster that was coming because of their waywardness, because they had lost touch with the heart and the ways of God, you would find over and over and over again warnings that sound as real and relevant today for the church as they were for the people of God in the centuries before Christ. I shared a story an episode or so ago about some young pastors who had similar disastrous experiences in the church, similar to mine and similar to many other pastors over the year and over the years. And in, and in one particular podcast I heard, uh, I heard about, they were, they were drinking pitchers of margaritas, getting just completely wasted and trashing the church. They were filled with with bitterness and cynicism, and I I have no doubt they were also filled with hurt and pain. And there's no reason for me to believe that those young pastors had any less of a call to their ministries than I do to mine. Again, I came close, very, very close to becoming just like them. But God spared me. He, He brought me through. And the words of Psalm 40 verse 2 says it all. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. That's what God did for me. And in many ways, that is what led in time to the founding of this this ministry, Church on the Edge. See, I don't want to do podcasts where I sit around with other pastors in drunkenness and trash the church. 
But neither am I going to ignore and downplay the serious problems in the church today. I'll tell you, we are so busy in the church blaming the culture. LGBTQ, legalized abortion, Hollywood, the liberal news media, other Christians who are saying things that we don't like or that we don't want to hear, maybe even that we disagree with, and, and, all, and along all that. We are just incensed at, at, as white Christians over movements like Black Lives Matter. I just read an article on that this morning. We're scandalized at the thought that our government might even consider. Now, these are Christians. We're scandalized that our government might even consider outlawing or curtailing the sale of automatic weapons used to kill large numbers of people at one time in, in post offices and mini-marts and schoolhouses. These are the things church folks are, are known for in these days. When I say church folks, look, I, I'm including me. When, when people hear I'm a Christian, when people hear I'm a Baptist and evangelical, they, they automatically assume that this is my position, this is where I stand on all of these things. And yet none of these things are as great a threat to the church today as Christians who believe that the problem comes from without and not within, and whose allegiance to Jesus Christ has been tainted, distorted, perverted by equating that allegiance with all these other things. No, I'm not going to leave the church, but I'm not going to stay quiet about the fact that the enemy is within, not without. And I'm far from the only one who feels this way. And I tell you, I live with and I carry this burden. I carry it almost 24-7. It's a burden that I can't put down because I care too much about the church. And because that faith that I almost abandoned has come roaring back with a, a freshness and a clarity I've never known. It's not a faith in the institutional church. It's a faith in a living Lord. And to follow him means that I've got to be willing to speak up and speak out regardless of the cost. And it's my prayer daily that somehow through these podcasts and my books and writings that, that God would speak to and encourage others who are struggling in, in these days when the, the church is so sick. Some like those former young pastors doing their margarita podcast. They need to hear that they're absolutely right. The church is messed up in, in many places and in, in many ways. But there's something greater than the broken down institution of the church. And that is its Lord, who in the scriptures is said to be the bridegroom of this dirty, compromised bride. I listened to an interview recently with Alice Cooper, the famous rock star who happens to be a strong, professing Christian. And Alice Cooper said something in that interview that really struck me. He was quoting his wife of over 40 years, who is also a strong follower of Jesus. And, and she had said this about marriage. She said, marriage is two dysfunctional people who refuse to give up on each other. <laughs> I think that's true. I know it's true in my marriage. 
Now, but I'd like to change that, change it a little bit and apply it to the church and the relationship of the church with the bridegroom, Jesus. Because you see, while the church today is definitely highly dysfunctional, Jesus, our Lord, the groom, is not. And he's not giving up on his church. It may very well be that like the nation of Israel, the church as we know it today may need to die, and that's okay. Because Christ is here. And he's ready to breathe new life, resurrection life into his church and his people. And my prayer for those of you who are listening to this podcast is that you would experience a landmark in your journey of faith that would change you and propel you forward in faith and trust in Jesus Christ and following him as a peacemaker, someone helping to heal the wounds and divisions in the church and in our nation. You may even be on a detour. You may be cynical. You may be embittered and angry and hurt at the church. You may even have walked away from your faith in Christ. Look, I understand. But as someone who has been to the edge and almost taken that long plunge down and and come back again, I want to encourage you to cry out to God and to ask him to help you to get back on the journey. Now, I don't know where that journey will lead for you. For one of the former members of our church in Seoul, it has led him to begin a house church, and and those attending his house church are not exactly the kinds of people you would find in most churches today. (laughs) But they are meeting with this young man and his wife, and they're sharing openly and honestly about their struggles are asking for the help of Christ and and through it all they're helping each other on the journey the way we were meant to do and so I just want to say that that right now I'm reaching out to some of you who have fallen and you're struggling to get back up maybe you're even struggling with desire to desire to get back up But I want to tell you, I'm offering my hand to you through these podcasts as as best I can. I'm offering my hand as someone who has felt and, and still feels the pain of a broken church. I'm not asking you to do anything else. I'm not asking you to do anything else but to call out to God, even in your doubts, even in your bitterness, to call out to God and ask him to help you find the faith to get back on the journey that he's called you to with Christ. This is Dan Armistead. Thanks for listening.